right now. And I had one organization that I came in and they said, Bill, you know, is this great? Because, you know, we've got 67 priorities and, you know, this is what we're working through in serious tone. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, sounds like a lot. It is a lot. And Welcome to The Change Lead, the podcast providing leaders with the insight needed to get things done in a rapidly changing and complex world. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Connect with our community of like-minded leaders on our website, thechangelead.com. Welcome to The Change Lead with your host, Babatope Ipiyumi. Have you ever worked with a confident leader? Have you seen up close the difference confidence makes when leading a team through change? The data tells us few people succeed in business without confidence. To discuss this with me today is Phil Buckley. Phil is a change management strategist and author. Phil is the author of two books, Change with Confidence and Change on the Run. Today, Phil and I will have a conversation on leading change with confidence. Hi, Phil. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really, really looking forward to today's conversation and welcome to the show. Abatope, thank you so much for having me on your show. I, I've been looking forward to this all week. It's a highlight and I'm having a great week. So thank you so much. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Looking forward to that. Thank you. Um, so to, to get started, I think I know you've written two books. Um, one, Change on the Run, the, the most recent book. And you also have another book out, leading, uh, leading ch how, is it change, with, change confidence. with confidence, and that was change sort of confidence. the, the yes. umbrella title. Yeah, change with confidence. Um, I think it would be good for our audience actually. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and a way of introduction about the books you've written and also the motivation behind the book? Because I think there's always a story behind the story of the books. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. Well, the first book, and at the time I was leading global change at Cadbury Schweppes, and the I was constantly traveling. So I was, you know, from one city to the next and and just traveling in the top 20 markets. I was working with the leaders and their teams. And what I was noticing is that there was a pattern that usually leaders who were, you know, invested into a big change and they're they're working through it. Oftentimes, the challenges that they faced with a transformation were very different than the, the challenges they had either functionally or as a general manager. And oftentimes, again, the their functional knowledge, so their whole career, that experience didn't translate well into the unknown. So we're, we're, we're moving into a, a new instance in our, our systems or we're merging. And the challenges that they faced they tried to, to rely on what they had experienced in the past, but they just didn't have the that experience bank that they could pull from. And, and I think it what happened is it took them from being great leaders to ones that were sort of either winging it or you know trying to um, make decisions with insufficient information. So what I did is over a few years, every time I found, a question that a leader struggled with or a leadership team, I'd write it on the back of a, a book. And I always carry these for, for those who are on the podcast, these black notebook journals, and I'd write it down. And what I found is that there was a commonality of ones that they tended to struggle. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? There's a commonality around the world. 
and they just don't have the knowledge base to solve it. So these are kind of the 50 questions that keep leaders up at night. How about I write a book on here's the options, here's things that tend to work, things that tend not to work, why is it relevant? And it would be a quick guy to jump in and jump out and and get the knowledge that they need. So uh, that was my first book. And it was and, and sort of the story behind it is I thought if this is a consistent gap, why not try and fill it so that you can help people out who don't have a lot of time to go on courses or have the experience that perhaps we have had in our careers? So that was the first book. And you know, five years went by and, and it was that time to write again. And it's like, okay, you know, things have changed quite a lot. The pace of change was was far greater, the amount of change that people are going through. And I think, you know, most people at that time are going through four different changes in their organization at the same time. And I started reading the statistics about how people read. And interestingly, people were buying business books, but they weren't reading them extensively. So I think this one stat was people read 20 to 40% of the books they buy. And another one from, I think it's Amazon that people only read about half of the book that they start to read. And I thought, okay, as an author, you're, you're investing three years of your life in a book and people don't have time to read it. And I thought, okay, as a change professional, trying to help somebody to help them as they go through change when they don't have time and they're busy. How am I going to help them out when they don't have time to read the book that I, I would write? So I came up with a present. I, I thought Change on the Run was a great title because we're all running through changes and managing our day job and working through change. So my premise was that the 80-20 rule, so the Pareto principle, is probably your best strategy when you don't have time or the background in change. So what's the what's the one thing that you could do that would give you 80% of the results and 20% of the time when you're faced with someone who's an obstructor of change, when you're trying to build trust, when you're trying to present a, a vision that's compelling? If you just did this one thing, you would probably get most of the way there. And then that was my that was my challenge to come up with 44 different scenarios that the one thing that you could do. So that was my second book that that I launched nice. about a year ago. Nice. Why did you use the number 44? 44. <laughs> Where did you oh, I know. <laughs> I wish I wish there was a secret, but I, I, it's actually quite funny because my it, this was during the pandemic era and I thought, okay, this is a hip pocket guide. You could grab it and go, you know, you could you could commute with it. All those things that no longer applied at that time for, for most countries. And I had a, a group of 18 people that were, and, and I used design thinking to create it, and they were definitely the deciders of what I would do. So my first my first uh, vision was a, a quick hip hop guide of 65 different mini chapters. And my the feedback <laughs> was, Phil, this isn't a hip pocket guide. This is a paperweight that people can't lift. <laughs> so they vo they voted on the top 44 that they would put in. And those are the right. ones that I, I kept in the final version. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I think what just explain your journey through those two books shows you've been a consistent, a very professional voice within the change management community. So thanks for, for that, sharing that. Um, one thing from my podcast, one thing that's come up from a lot of conversation I've had from guests 
and other compositions is resistance to change, something you would have heard a lot of. So it'd be good to, to delve into that a lot. Um, I've heard somebody say that change is the scariest word in the dictionary. I don't, I don't entirely agree with it, but I know where they're coming from. Um, the fact that people resist change is really not in dispute. So we get good to get your thoughts and insights into this. Why is this? Why are people resistant to change from your perspective? Yes, and it's such an important topic because I would suggest that we all go through our own forms of resistance when we're going through personal change. And, and even in an organizational setting from the top leader to the person who's sort of on the, the connected to their clients or whatever day-to-day -day as individual contributors. And I think the reason why people are resistant is because we are creatures of habit. We do get comfort from knowing how to do things. And all of a sudden, a change comes and things are going to be different. And I think the core of it is fear. And there's just a fear. There's so many different versions of why people would be afraid. And I think they're all very logical. Maybe I don't have the skills in the new world that I'll be successful or I'm losing control because now I know how to be a master of my own area and now I don't know what's going to happen or my status is going to change because I used to be reporting to someone really senior in my the new structure I'm three different levels down. So what what I would suggest is that well why does it happen fear is the answer but it's an individual experience. So I think the best change practitioners really delve into figuring out what are the potential areas of fear and then try to mitigate them by how they present change going forward. And an example of that would be if people are, are feeling scared because they don't know what's going to happen. So the fear of uncertainty, a simple tactic of, of explaining what's staying the same and what will change is one way to minimize that resistance. And I think there's a lot of challenge that goes on with organizations and how they deal with resistance. Because even it was interesting that you talked about the, the, the most fearful word is 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 change. And 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 I would think that sort of the the semiotics of what what the what words are actually the meanings that people get, I think resistance is the wrong word to say, because it it almost is combative. It's almost like I'm going to resist you. And it, it almost has a negative connotation that says, if you know Phil is resisting, then therefore he has negative intent. And it's been my experience that many people that resist are the most passionate about the organization, and they're most concerned with the welfare of it, and they're really worried that you know we'll mess things up as we're going to do the change or this change we did 10 years ago and it failed and here you go you know <laughs> Phil and Babs are going to come in and they're going to do the same thing and it's going to it's going to hinder us as people and as also the organization so i think it saying concerns or things to consider or different perspectives are all different you know synonyms for resistance and so that would be my perspective on why people actually resist. And also I think we have a bias for being, treating it negatively. And, and I would reframe it as it's a great opportunity to get change, right? I think I, I'll, I'll agree with that actually. I think it's very well, very well put. Um, it's, it's natural. I think it's natural for you if you're really passionate about something and you're not sure of the future, 
you will naturally be apprehensive. So that what you're saying is is true. So I think it's it's a, like you said, it's an opportunity to get change right. I think also what um what I've seen is there's probably people are on a spectrum when it comes to handling uncertainty. Some people will jump into things a lot quicker. Others will be a lot more hesitant. Um, also, there's a there's a perspective I've seen, and good to get your take on this. Is sometimes people have a portfolio. It's almost like a portfolio view. So if you look at an investor, they will have some very safe investments and some risky investments. So it's very easy in a situation you say, okay, for this situation, I'm not taking any risks. And I'm happy to take risks somewhere else. So people's lives are a portfolio of lots of different activities. People's businesses, people's enterprises, people's um, careers are a portfolio of, of activities. So you, if you look at it in balance, people have a view, but there might be some areas where you see naturally they're very hesitant to make changes because of where, where, where the portfolio is. So that's what that's what I've seen. Good to get your take on, on that concept of a portfolio of, risk-taking in respect to change. Yes, and I agree. I would say that in, in any individual, there is going to be different degrees. And, and I think the complexity is that everyone has a different portfolio and therefore you don't, and even if you, you extend the, the stock, you know, the stock portfolio, investment portfolio, you really have to know what's in their portfolio before you can help them out. And, and I would agree. And I, I think oftentimes people will, not taking that view and just make an assumption about the level of risk or even the the straight line perspective that these things are going to be risky for everyone and there's certain things that won't be risky which is our own personal bias so again it goes back to understanding the individual and and knowing their portfolio and and where are they sensitive and where are they not and and i think that links into a, a broader strategy about how do you almost do a, a a risk assessment analysis of where people are and and i think the only way you can do it effectively is to encourage people to talk about what their concerns are and and where they're at and and where they are and and for you know early on in my career i i was always about you know you're you're in a change role you've, you've created a change plan and and then there's always that personal bias that you're trying to sell your plan. I've thought of everything. I've I've come up with this great plan and resistance is going to be counteracting this plan. So I, I really have to sort of present it that there won't be resistance. And I think with maturity and, and also making some really big mistakes, I realized that the best way to help mitigate risk is to encourage people to share their, their concerns you know, what they're hesitant about, um, why they're going to re resist. And if I can flip the perspective that by being a great contributor to the organization, I want you to find holes. I want you to share what's going to go wrong. I want you to pressure test this. Part of your role as a great contributor is to show me where there's possible areas of resistance. And they're in we can reward that type of behavior that others might see as pulling holes in the plan that I'm trying to sell, which I used to do at a very young age. I'm, not, I'm wondering what you would think about that. Does that make sense? I, I, I totally agree, actually. Um, so I actually had a very specific experience where at the end of an initiative, the feedback that came through was this was a brilliant plan. Everything was perfectly planned. That was the feedback that came through. 
But the reality was what actually happened was exactly what you described. We started with a plan that was deeply flawed, but we had a team that was very cohesive and everybody pointed holes in it, like completely tore it apart. But because we're open to do that, we built it together, we worked together, very cohesive, because the plan is just, at the end of the day, it points to start a conversation. That's what it does. It starts a conversation. What are you concerned about? That And the plan allows you to say, this is what you think. Where do we have a difference of opinion? And you use the plan to, to have that, that dialogue. Yeah. And the output was a successful delivery. Now, from the outside, everybody looked at it as, oh, that was a wonderful plan. Everything went to plan. It never happens that way. What actually happens is you use the plan as a point of conversation and people come together. So, so I totally agree. Is it? That's, that's the way it actually happens. It's just that when it happens, people, most people don't see what's really going on under <laughs> the hood. They see the shiny exterior of a plan, which is the reality. No, that's beautiful. That's a great example. And, and it's, it's such an inf- interesting conversation we're having about resistance, because if you see it as an inevitable part of transformation that has a, a strategic role, as, as well as a human role in, in sort of hopefully reducing people's personal concerns about doing things differently in the future, you can use it to our advantage versus either trying to pretend it doesn't exist or to try and um, almost uh, make it go underground or, or sort of eliminate it by by threats. Yeah, indeed. Um, another topic that's come up a lot when I speak to leaders is this challenge of prioritization. I, I like the the way you introduce your your second book, Change on the Run. We're so busy; the rate of change is so so quick that the natural response for leaders is to say, "I've got to do everything." I've got to change the boat and buy buy a new boat at the same time. It's everything is going on at the same time. Um, I think you probably heard this quote. There's a quote that says, "If everything is important, nothing's important." At at some point, we do need to choose where we focus our energy. Um, So, we're good to get your take on prioritization in this in this context of rapid change, and it's it's just a reality, and it's not it's not always an easy um situation for leaders when there's so many things changing how how can we handle prioritization what's what what can we do to to stay on top of it so we can actually prioritize professionally and sensibly certainly and i i find the the challenge that that most people go through as you mentioned with so much going on it, it can give that false notion that the more i do sort of a little bit everywhere here and there or you know, someone's angry, so I'm going to try and, you know, mitigate that that concern. There's an impression that we're working really hard and we are getting things done. And what I find that is the miss in that equation is that it's, it's about, well, what are we really trying to accomplish? What are those goals? And I'm not sure if you've been on a change assignment where people are just so into that messy middle in the middle, you almost forget what the purpose is of doing the change. What are the benefits? What are we trying to do? And we're caught up on the plan or we're on the critical path and says that we had to have this milestone is so important because we have to present it back to the steering committee where that might not be the most important thing to do to lead to a good outcome. So the first thing I would suggest is, is continually thinking about what are we trying to accomplish so that the plan or the project doesn't overtake the initiative, which I think is just so natural to happen with so much going on. 
And the second one, I would say, in, in the sense of prioritization, it, it's what I would say is impact. And you know, the the classic is you know impact versus likelihood of occurring with risks. But you know, it is the the change on the run. What is the best use of my resource right now that's limited to move the organization forward to achieve our outcomes? So what will have the biggest impact now? And it could be that there's a stakeholder that's concerned and it's it's causing a major distraction. So the the prioritization is to align that person or to ameliorate their concerns or whatever it is to move forward because the distractions are actually creating risk in the system. So what is the most important thing I, I need to do now with my resources? The second thing I, I would suggest though, is if I'm truly going to prioritize, there's only two or three things I should be doing right now. And I, I had one organization that I came in and they said, Bill, you know, is this great? Cause you know, we've got 67 priorities and you know, this is what we're working through in serious tone. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. And, and it, the, the whole, I think the definition I would have is prioritization is there's only a, a, a few that you should focus on where it's so easy to get caught into 10 meetings and, you know, to take on extra activities. So what are the few and what's the impact of what I do right now that will guide it? The last thing I would say, though, is prior, the priority of, of whom. And what I would mean is that the it could be a sponsor, it could be whatever, that we can have our own priorities or the people that we report into of what their priorities are. And I think if there's a mismatch there, you just have a disconnect that destroys value so that there can be a time, I think, if there is a sponsor, let's say, that really needs this this particular activity done, and you might not think it's as important, but if she or he doesn't get it done, it's going to make them far less effective. I would let that trump my other concern. So it's all about impact, I think, is the biggest one, and only do a couple of things, which is so easy to say and so hard to do. Yeah, I think I think you, you're right. Isn't it? only do a couple of things. It's it's so important. You you focus on the two, uh, on the few, like you said, two or three. Which is I I remember that two or three. Um, I think something else I've seen is sometimes people come into a context, they come into a situation, and they are failing to accept the reality. So, if if you go in and you realize this is where we are accept where we are and then based on accepting where we are what are the two three things we can focus our energies on right. but if you don't accept the reality of where we are you're almost trying to do 10 things to get yourself to zero all right and yes. i've seen so so many so many leaders in that situation but if you just yes we're not where we want to be but that's the reality accept reality and it does it does make a, a, big, a big a big difference um and i think i like the examples you you've given the, the the tips you've given there a lot of it's more the human element again it's not really a technical thing of you need to use yeah. this tool for prioritization you need to use this process it goes back to what is the focus what is the impact where where's our vision what are we what what's the, the where's our attention meant to be so that is that is that's quite key um before I switch topics a little bit, as in something else that's um, come up a lot, in, and I'm trying to pick up 
big topics for you, if you don't mind. Thank you. Is the <laughs> is is the concept <laughs> of trust, building trust in teams. Um, wow. So this is something I've seen cons consistently. Successful project teams, when you look at them, you can see a, a decent amount of trust. Um, it's quite it's quite consistent. Um, one one reason why I tend to like longer term initiatives is you do get the opportunity to build trust in a team. So if you're doing something for a month, two months, you, you're going to go in and it's going to be pretty much linear, professional. But when you've got a six-month period, you can get to know people. You can get to bring them on side. It just has a completely different dynamic um, within a team once you've got the opportunity to actually build cohesion and build trust within a team. So it would be good to get your take on you know, how, how do we get to build trust within a project team? Um, yes. Thank you so much. This is a beautiful topic. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example if I could, and then I could share my perspectives. And I had a, a really fascinating assignment many years ago, and it was during a merger. And there was a merger as well as the integration of SAP instances. So you've got a technical uh, connectivity as well as a cultural one with a lot of pressure to perform during transformation. And this was in North America or, or the, the northern part of North America with Canada and the U.S. And the, the plan was going to be the U.S. would go first and then halfway through the implementation, half of the team would go to Canada to do the second part of it and then they would connect it. And the, it was so fascinating as a, an experience because the cultures were very different. And it just so happened in the US with the leaders of the integration that it wasn't very trustful. The, it was more about more combative, I would say, that there was um, usually someone at a steering committee would be stripped down and, and just you know criticized or whatever. There's very little trust. And, and that became the culture. So it was a culture of fear. And uh, so then halfway through, and, and people change their behavior too, because if you're not in a trustworthy environment, you're always looking for someone to be untrustworthy with you. So it was very much of a survival of the fittest, you know, fear-based one, completely separate team in Canada. So half the team goes to Canada and they haven't had any of the US experience. The, the particular culture of that integration project team, the, the the leader of the PMO is let me know how I can help you. You know, let's collaborate. You know, some of our principles is there are going to be times where we disagree. But if we find that we disagree, the two parties, if you go and figure it out yourself and come back with a solution that's amenable to both of you and share that. So you can only imagine from the who who did something wrong and and here's your censure for doing it to okay collaborate we know it's going to be tough but come back when you have a solution and it was just night and day and and the impact says you'd mention is that you know there's so so much time spent not being hurt in one and there's so much time collaborating in the other one and it was night and day and actually when the full team came over sort of the the leader of the whole initiative almost distrusted the trusting group because there was just almost no no combative behavior of yelling or whatever name calling or or things that you tend to get in that and and i think what what i would say coming back to your question 
is you do get time to to develop trust if you are trustworthy and if your behaviors are trustworthy and consistent. And I think you do have time to build lack of trust if that's not the same. And, and I do think that the behaviors we have are reciprocated usually with similar behaviors. So if you're given respect, if you're, if you're appreciated for the work that you do, if you're not called out, if you treat mistakes as learning opportunities to debrief and then for everyone to get it, you tend to get behaviors that are in a safe, psychologically safe environment and people have high trust. Or if you do the opposite, it is the same. And, and often I'll find when leadership teams will say, well, we're in an environment that is not trustworthy. We need to build trust. And, and my hypothesis is, well, let me go back and see what happens. And in all instances, the leaders have not been trustworthy. They have said one thing and they have done, you know, the words and their actions do not align. They have committed to something and then they have not shown support. They So all the trust untrustworthy behavior that you can imagine, they see the impacts of that and then they long for trust, but they're not willing to trust first. So I would say, uh, coming back to yours, how do you build it is to be trustworthy first, with is the simple answer, but I think it's the only one. And the, the big headline and the marquee, I think for your listeners, I'd say, which I think we all agree is, trust is earned. You just can't will it onto a, a group, but I'd love your perspectives on it. What, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think I, I, I'll agree that trust trust is earned. Trust is, so, I'll probably use a personal experience as, as well. Please. I'll try not to go into too much detail so I don't expose people as much. Um, what, I, what I've discovered is when, when so there was this situation where I was in a team, there was no trust. The, the trust was, um, so, I'll, so I, I went in and there were these two people just nonstop going at each other. So I, I was brought in and I thought, I thought at first it was a technical issue. I went and said, oh, it's a technical issue. They need to structure it right. I'll come sort it out. And I took each individual aside and asked the question. And when you ask enough questions, what I found each one was saying through different words was, they don't trust me. There was even, I don't trust them. that. That was, and they were both saying it in different ways when you, when you speak with their one-on-one. So I realized, okay, there's a trust issue here. That's why you could never agree on any document. Anything written was never going to be agreed on. So you, could, you couldn't agree on anything because you don't trust even what's been put across. You don't trust it. So what I deliberately did was, okay, we're going to have to act in a trusting way, even though there's no trust. And so it's, it's not like you're starting from zero. You just have to accept reality that this is an, a group that there's no trust. You have to trust first knowing fully well that you will not get that trust back. So you will get antagonism back, but you take, it took months to build trust, but those months were very painful because you are acting in a way that you don't get a reciprocation of that trust. So you're right. And in most cases, if you're starting from scratch, it's, you know, you make the investment and you don't get, you're not in an untrusting environment. Now, if you had to do this, I think the example you gave with a team that there's also very, or there's already very low trust, then that is challenging. It can be done. I've seen it done. Absolutely. But I have to be honest, it's it's tough <laughs> because <laughs> you will you will be going 
into a situation whereby nobody trusts and you have to act and you have to trust first you get hurt you keep going at it because there is no other way particularly if you if you're trying to invest into a team to deliver successfully and perform at a high level for a long period of time that's the only way forward you do need to build trust it's almost impossible for a team especially in in the context in which a lot of work gets done now where you need to collaborate yes. very little value is created by a single individual you you need to collaborate laterally it's not a manager telling everybody what to do you need to collaborate across teams across functions in that situation trust is essential um, oh absolutely and i think the the fix it's difficult but and, and i know I'm, I'm mentioning well leaders doing this and, and i think the it is true that since leaders do have position power, they they definitely have so much influence. If they change first, people are more likely to come along because their leaders are doing a certain behavior. So they'll emulate it because there's almost permission with that behavior. And and even simple things like in, in an untrustworthy sort of environment, and even if it was a new leader coming in, if she said, Oh, hey, I just want to mention, I want to share I made this mistake and I, I, I'd i like us all to analyze it because there's some good learnings here. What's the team going to think? Okay, you know, I, I got uh, I, I got punished for the last one, but now all of a sudden, or, hey, that was me. I'm fully accountable for that. I missed to do that. I'm sorry. Here's how I'm going to correct it. Like little changes, but very big and significant changes of saying it or even, okay, great. So, um, this is what we're going to do. That's great. I trust you. You go ahead. Let me know if you need any help. But you know, but I, I think you've got it. Over to you. Like little things that change people's perceptions. And I'm a huge behavior behavioral fan. That if you change behavior, it changes mindsets. And if people start seeing that it is a more trustworthy environment, over time, I think you start getting converts to say, well you know, things are different now. So maybe it is okay for me to put my hand up to say that I didn't do something instead of saying, well, I did everything. It was Phil who dropped the ball or, or whatever that happens when we don't have trust. So change the environment. And I think you can change the level of trust going forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And like you said, it's the, it's the little things. You just do bit by bit, you know, little things over time. Yes. And for given the rate of change, given the number of things um, in flight, a trusting team is quite key to perform at a high level and to stay on top oh, of things. I must. I must. And maybe just one more point, if I if I could share too. I think with the the leader setting the tone at the beginning is so important, and even the sense of of acknowledging their fear or i'm not quite sure of everything that we'll need to do but i know we have the team to do it and you know the the only way that we're going to be successful is that we're going to share our knowledge and collaborate and you know help each other when we're we're challenged and maybe we do make mistakes i i think you can set that table for people to sit down and 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 to feel like this is going to be a good experience and a safe one uh, versus a lot of times I find where, oh, this is going to be so tough and, oh, we're going to have to work night and day and there's going to be periods where we can't have holidays. And it, it's just creating this in pressure cooker environment that I don't think is conducive enough to trusting and, and support as if we had approached it a different way.
Yeah, I, I agreed. I think, like I said, the, the leader sets the tone. I mean, what the leaders do is so key. Um, so, so, so key. Um, one thing, just final question, um, and I'm just going to go back to the book and um, change with confidence. Yes. The the key the key word there confidence is something I I know you've spoken on a, a little bit before. Just want to get your take on why confidence is so important when it comes to change. Um, why is that? Thank you. I, and it was an observation from working with so many people around the world. And and I there was almost two different camps. It was someone who was feeling like they knew how to go forward, even if they didn't have all the answers, but there was just, they emanated a sense of comfort and uncertainty. And then there was another group that was the opposite, that they either were fearful or their behaviors were, were intensified and, and you could just tell that there was this discomfort to do it. And, and what I realized is that it, it was a sense of confidence as being the most important trait that people can exhibit and 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 live through to actually be their best during change. And there's so many different definitions of confidence. And I think the best one that I found, and it, it was from uh, Dan Rockwell, and he has a, a blog called Leader Leadership Freak or Leaders Freak. And he said confidence is the product of knowing what to do next. And it was not necessarily knowing the end game and everything you're going to have to do and uncertainty, but the belief in moving forward to try things, to do something, to progress, which actually leads to the confidence of, okay, this is completely new. Something's not working. Okay, let's, let's take a look at it and we're just going to work through it. What's the first thing we should do? Let's get data on what the, the variance is or whatever. Um, but I think that exuding of the confidence is we're going to get there, and I know that we have our abilities to do so. It was a night and day difference of effectiveness and productivity because I found the people who lacked confidence, it, it tended to, to almost stun them so that th there was more of a, a, an interest in just staying where they were, whereas the confident people knew that they had to move forward and that somehow we would figure it out. So confidence is such a huge enabler of, of change and, and being your best during change. Nice. I like that. Knowing what to do next. Just knowing, isn't it a fascinating quote and, and knowing what to do next. And, and it doesn't suggest that that doing that thing will be perfect, but that will lead to the next thing and that will need and then and then your team comes with you and i've what i find is you know one of our themes today which has been beautiful about focus and prioritization it focuses you on that first step so it's that 80 20 what can i do what's my priority activity but i find it also creates momentum with the team that it's you know okay great we we're we're going to be doing something okay let's figure this out instead of fretting and and thinking yeah. about the dire consequences because it's not working out well. So if we can build people's confidence as a, a change enabler or as a change capability, I find is so, so important. Um, and and if we don't, I think unfortunately some people aren't necessarily all people aren't necessarily their best because they're fearful and fear fear leads to inactivity. 
um, and sort of the emotions of panic and and things that that aren't going to help them nor the organization. Indeed, indeed. I think that's that's been brilliant. Um, I think the, the conversation so far has been value loaded. <laughs> so thanks for oh, thanks thank for you. sharing so so much. Um, just in, in closing, um, can you just share you know any anything else you want to you want to share anything interesting that you're working on right now? And I think importantly, how can people reach out and contact you? Oh, Babatope, thank you so much. And the uh, sort of the final point I, I would say, and again, from making so many mistakes, which is is how we learn, is that it, it is the co-creation that you mentioned is 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 a default for everything I do now. That the um, by not doing so and not having people participating, and I think people participating is a confidence builder as well. That you know, people rarely disagree with their own advice and if they're actually contributing to it and knowing that they're making a contribution to shape the future. Uh, not only do they feel good and having a sense of purpose and meaning, it's the they're being their best and it is building their confidence. So I would always default and, and never take it on ourselves of we've got to figure it out, we have to have the answer. Because when I used to operate that way, I think it's a disservice to the whole population of being contributors and being, being part of the success. So that would be my biggest learning I'd like to share. And the yeah, I'm, I'm working on some really interesting assignments now. One is for an organization planning out the next three years of the organization with a, a new board and, and a, you know some new uh, leadership team members and a great mandate. Um, and starting from scratch, and and a lot of the things that we talked about today, the theme of them feeling confident that they will be successful, that prioritization is is absolutely essential, and creating an initial feeling of trust so that they can be their best is is a great kickoff point that I'm trying to to do now. So very exciting work, but it, it all does circle back to some of those truisms that we talked about today so and and as we know and and as your leaders know no matter how much change you go through it's never dull they're always different there's always so much to learn uh, so thank you so much for the opportunity one is to be on today but also to have your podcast to share learning to the community and, and abroad and uh, if anyone would would like to connect uh, linkedin is something i'm passionate about so find me at phil buckley on linkedin or my website is changewithconfidence.com with a lot of free resources and support there if anyone's interested. And But thank you. In closing, thank you so much for the opportunity to have a wonderful chat today. I, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you so much. What I'll do for our audience, I'll put your the link to your LinkedIn and your website in the show notes so you can, you can reach out to Phil. Phil, brilliant. Thanks for generously sharing your insights. Thanks for all the learning. I've learned a lot from today's conversation. So it's been brilliant. Thank you. So, so have much. I. Thank you so much. And, and all the best to your listeners and viewers and wish them all the best as they continue to lead change. Would you like to learn more about leading change with confidence? Would you like to join in the conversation on how to confidently handle uncertainty? Connect with a community of like-minded leaders on our website, thechangelead.com. When you visit our site, click join to join the community. Check out the show notes for details on how you can contact today's guest, Phil Buckley. Also, please don't forget to like, comment, 
review and subscribe. Thank you very much for tuning in. Have a great week and see you next time.